This podcast is sponsored by Oz. Oz is a premium disposable vape product made with the highest pharmaceutical grade quality ingredients and comes in 12 delicious flavors like velvet tobacco, sweet apple, strawberry banana, grape ice, lemon tart, mango, and so many more. Right now, Oz is offering all of my listeners 50% off their orders. So head on over to letsoz.com and use my promo code HARMONY for 50% off your order. With O's, you'll look forward to your moment of zen. This episode is sponsored by Doom and Groom. Doom and Groom are a craft hair, skin, beard, and tattoo care company based in Denver, Colorado. Their oils, balms, butters, and pomades are great for use from head to toe, keeping your hair and skin healthy and hydrated. All of their products are unisex, dye-free, chemical-free, plastic-free, and organic. Head on over to doomandgroom.net and use my code HARMONYDOOM for 10% off your purchase. Once again, that is doomandgroom.net, promo code HARMONYDOOM. Have you ever heard of Candyman? If you look in the mirror, you say his name five times. In cities everywhere, Candyman, they whisper his name. Right? Candyman. It's just a story. Candyman. Candyman. Just a ghost story. Candyman. grew up hearing stories that were passed on by word of mouth. Those, this happened to a friend of a friend of mine. Many of us grew up with the typical urban legends of our town. If you grew up in Staten Island, you grew up with the tale of Cropsy, a boogeyman who lived in the woods and would snatch children up at night. Maybe you heard the tale of the man in your town who did too many drugs and was stuck believing he was in fact a teapot. How about the killer in the medicine cabinet. Though many urban legends are completely false, there are several that are absolutely true. From humorous to odd to downright terrifying, here are some urban legends that are in fact reality. My name's Harmony and welcome to this week's episode. According to Google, a dictionary is a book or electronic resource that lists the words of a language. Typically, this is in alphabetical order. It will give the words meaning or gives the equivalent words in a different language, often also providing information about punctuation, origin, and usage. But what if I told you the dictionary made a mistake? Editor-in-chief of Webster's Third New International Dictionary, Philip Babcock Gove, wrote a letter to the journal American Speech 15 years after there was an error caught. In the letter, he explained that the word doored was an error and had been introduced and corrected. So how did this happen? How did the dictionary allow a word to come into existence all by mistake? 
On July 31, 1931, Austin M. Peterson, at the time was the dictionary's chemistry editor, sent a slip that read D or D, continue density. This was intended to add density to an existing list of words that the letter D can abbreviate. The phrase D or D was misinterpreted as a single run-together word, introducing the word doored. Now this mistake was very plausible. How could this be possible? Head words that would be passed around on slips through this editing process would often have spaces in between. Therefore, D or D with its spaces looked very much like a spaced apart doored. The original slip did go missing, so a new slip was prepared for the printer, which assigned a part of speech, noun, as pronunciation. This would-be word was not questioned or corrected by proofreaders at the time. The entry appeared on page 771 of the dictionary around 1934. It would have been located in between the entries Dorcopsis, which is a small kangaroo, and Dore, which means golden in color. This brings us to February 28, 1939. This is when an editor noticed the word doored lacked etymology and investigated discovering the error. An order was then sent to the printer marked plate change imperative urgent. The non-word doored was excised. Density was then added as an additional meaning to the abbreviation D or D as originally intended. The definition of the adjacent entry Doré Furnace was expanded from a furnace for refining Doré Bouillon to a furnace in which Doré Bouillon is refined. This was done to close up the space. In Gove's letter, he wrote, probably too bad, for why shouldn't Dord mean density? In 1940, bound books began appearing without the ghost word. Although you can still find printed copies with the word Dord still present. The word Dord was not completely removed from the dictionary until 1947. So, next time you make a mistake, remember this. So did the dictionary. A warning for parents ahead of Halloween. Yeah, police want to remind you to double check your kids' Halloween candy before they actually eat it. In a recent drug bust in Pennsylvania, police say they found bags full of candy that was laced with THC. Most of that candy was Nerds Rope edibles. Although police say there were warnings on the packaging stating that it contained THC, they say it's something that could easily be overlooked by a child. We all grew up with warnings to check your Halloween candy before you eat it. Now as grown adults, we know not a lot of people are out here handing out their edibles for fun. But poisoned and laced candy is actually very real. On October 31st, 1974, Timothy O'Brien passed away after ingesting a pixie stick that was laced with potassium cyanide. Timothy and four other neighborhood children were given pixie sticks after going to a house that did not answer. Timothy's father decided to stay behind to see if the occupant would come to the door. And wouldn't you know, they did. However, Ronald didn't see the person. Simply, they just stuck their hand out and handed him five 21-inch long pixie sticks. This is when Ronald caught back up with the group and passed out the candy. Now, just like other kids, Timothy wanted to eat some candy before bed. This is when, according to Ronald, Timothy chose the pixie stick. 
As soon as Timothy tasted the candy, he complained that it was bitter. This is when Ronald got him some Kool-Aid to help wash down the bitter taste. Immediately, Timothy ran to the bathroom complaining that his stomach hurt and started to vomit and convulse. Timothy O'Brien died en route to the hospital. At first, Ronald was not a suspect. This was until Timothy's autopsy revealed that the pixie stick he ingested was in fact laced with cyanide. Authorities asked the parents of the remaining kids to please turn in the pixie sticks. The parents of the fifth child were hysterical because they could not find his. They rushed upstairs to find their son asleep clutching the unconsumed pixie stick. It seems as though he could not get the wrapper opened, and this is what saved his life. When police questioned Ronald about the house he got the pixie sticks from, he said he could not remember where it was. After several trips, Ronald finally took them to the house. Ronald told police he never saw the man behind the door, he simply saw a hairy arm. Police found out that a man by the name of Courtney Melvin was the owner of the home. However, he had an alibi. He worked at the local airport and at least 200 people had seen him at work that night. Authorities began looking into Ronald, and this is when they found out that he was more than $100,000 in debt. To put that in perspective to you, from 1974, $100,000 of debt would be equivalent to $550,000 today. My man was drowning. Not only did they find out that Ronald was in fact severely in debt, they also learned that in the months before Timothy's passing, he had taken out life insurance policies on both of his children. He even added two more just days before Timothy passed away. Police also discovered that Ronald had gone to a chemical supply store in Houston to buy cyanide just before Halloween as well. Police believe he intended to poison his children in order to collect the life insurance policies. They also believe that he gave the other children the poison candy in an effort to cover up his crime. Ronald maintained his innocence. He was convicted on capital murder in June of 1975 and sentenced to death. He was executed by lethal injection in March of 1984. Ronald Clark O'Brien will forever be known as the Candyman and the man who killed Halloween. The bottom's really uh, silty, so you can stare it up uh, fairly quickly, but uh, if you stay off the bottom, you get uh, two or three feet of visibility, but uh, there's not much down there. As far as ghost stories go, most people wouldn't describe them as being whimsical. However, there is a legend that haunts the waters of Gardner Lake in Connecticut that could be described as whimsical. This story will leave you smiling, confused, and probably a little creeped out. It all began in 1895. A local family decided they loved living beside the lake. But they loved the lake even more from the other side. This is when they hatched a plan to move their house across the scenic Gardner Lake. They were going to do this in the winter, once the lake had fully frozen over. Once winter arrived, it was time to begin. The house was placed on wooden slabs so it could be slid across the ice. This was going to be a two-day trip. When the family returned the morning of day two to complete the move, they noticed the ice had broken. Luckily, the family was able to get inside and get most of their possessions. But heavier items did have to be left, and the house itself could not be saved. 
Over these past years, scuba divers still report parts of the house and those heavier possessions are still intact. One of these items is a piano. In fact, many visitors have reported hearing piano music from every direction, likely because legend has it that the music is coming from underneath the water itself. But nobody knows who's playing it. After all, nobody died in the house when it sunk. Maybe someone was lost in the move though, and it wasn't reported. Or maybe a spirit that already wandered the lake made the house its home. Either way, it's definitely creepy. So if you're ever in the Gardner Lake State Park area, go check out the completely intact house at the bottom of the lake, where the piano is said to still play to this day. We gotta get you the fuck out of Dodge, man. We're going to Vegas tonight. What are you talking about, Vegas? Vegas, baby, Vegas! Las Vegas is known as Sin City, the city of glitz and glam. Known for its shimmering lights, its world-class shows, gambling, and nightlife, which draws people in from around the world. I've never been, but I do believe it is in fact a one-of-a-kind destination. However, there is a underside to this city. You see, during the 2008 financial crisis, the area was hit pretty hard. Thousands of people lost their jobs, and the homeless population exploded. Many ended up finding it difficult to return to their life they once had. So, they would do whatever they had to just to survive in the harsh desert climate. Everyone, welcome to Vegas. Living down here is, the illusion is, is that there's nothing else around you. You forget that there's an outside world, you forget that you're underground, you, it becomes your own world. There are nearly a thousand people living under the Las Vegas Strip in the tunnels that run throughout the city. The mole people, as they've been come to be known, are living under some of the most popular hotels and casinos on the Strip. If you visit the city, it is not unlikely that you will walk right above them without even realizing they are there. They can see you, but you can't see them. Hundreds of homeless people are living in what is known as the tunnels. But these aren't just normal tunnels, these are hazardous storm drains located underneath the city. Luckily, torrential downpours in this desert city are not very frequent. However, the people that do call this place their home risk their lives by being there when it does rain. The people that come to Las Vegas have high hopes of winning it big. Unfortunately, that doesn't often happen. Some of the people living underground take everything they make in the casino trying desperately to win their way out of their dire situations, only to end up back where they started. Some people living in the tunnels are actually running from their past, or they're trying to escape someone or something. They traveled to Las Vegas to get away, and then they ended up going underground to make sure they were never found again. Now when it rains, it's not uncommon for everything in the homes in the storm drains to wash away completely. 
Sometimes the people do find their belongings, but most of the time the water sweeps their things far away and they're never able to recover them, which is all in all tragic for those who already have so little. The people of the tunnel have made their own apartments to live in. They've typically made the most of their living situation by setting up their very own apartments, complete with a bed, shelving units, and even battery-powered lights. Sadly, it is not just single adults that call these tunnels their home. There are many pregnant women and families that live there. Though many people do call this their home, some claim it to only be temporary. Most of the people down there only plan to stay for a little while. They are waiting to get paid or find a job. Hi. Hi, my name is Ewald. What's your name? Stephanie. Hi, Stephanie. Nice to meet you. Uh, so, so, so this is where you live? This is where I live. Okay. How old are you? I am 36. 36, okay. And, and what's it like to, to be here as a woman? Um, not as difficult as you might think. Um, everybody's really respectful. Um, people down here are, are good to each other. Yeah. Which I don't, I don't think you find much. Okay. What was your job before you ended here? <laughs> I used to be in pornography. As an actress? Mm-hmm. Surprisingly to know, some people who live under the tunnels were quite successful at one time. Film star Jenny Lee knows all too well that life is difficult at times. And when you are up high, the harder you fall. She is one of many people who found themselves living somewhere they never thought they would end up, inside the tunnels. As many of you know, disabled veterans make up quite a bit of our homeless population. These brave men and women who serve the military are now living in poverty underneath one of the busiest cities in the world. Now, trash has become a massive problem due to the people living in the tunnels. They bring down so much to make their homes, and when it rains, that rushing water takes their things away. They pile up in areas of storm drain systems blocking and causing more damage. The trash buildup is becoming a major nuisance for the city, and they have to clean it up. As I've stated a few times, Las Vegas is a desert. The climate is absolutely unforgiving. In the summer, during the day, temperatures can reach over 110 degrees, and at night, fall below the 60s. The tunnels became a safe place to offer protection from the elements. Now there is an upside to this. Many organizations are trying to help the people living in this dangerous storm drain. These workers bring assistance to those with medical conditions and more. They offer to help people find jobs and a way back into society. Even with help and ways to get out, some people want to stay. They don't mind living in the tunnels and call it their happy place. For one reason or another, they like the life they are living, and no amount of coaxing will bring them out. So if you ever make it out to Sin City, while you're having a good time gambling and partying it up, just remember there are people right beneath you. Candyman. The urban legend is, if you say his name five times while looking in the mirror, he appears in the reflection and kills you. Who would do that? Candyman. 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 
well, we're still alive. I'd like you guys to prepare yourself for this one. Contrary to popular stories, Candyman and Bloody Mary are not real. No matter how many times you stand in front of a mirror saying either's name, no bloodied spirit or man with a hook will come out and kill you. However, this may have been inspired by a real life murder. Ruthie Mae McCoy was a living example of how our institutions fail the marginalized and underprivileged. Ruthie was a black woman who grew up on Chicago's South Side, and in her 20s, Ruthie began exhibiting symptoms of mental illness. Despite the consensus that she was in fact mentally ill, those close to her weren't able to identify her condition. Only that she would talk to herself or burst out and cuss at strangers suddenly on the street. She would later be diagnosed with residual type schizophrenia. This is a diagnosis that arises when someone has experienced schizophrenic type episodes in their past, but is not currently exhibiting any symptoms. Now, when Ruthie was in the midst of her mental illness, it affected her ability to hold down a steady job. She was not able to maintain employment for longer than a month. And to make matters a bit more difficult, she was institutionalized several times throughout her life. In 1983, Ruthie found herself living in ABLA homes. This was public housing, which was coincidentally located near Cabrini Green, the setting of the 1992's Candyman. Despite her circumstances, there was evidence that Ruthie was taking the steps to leave the projects in the months before her murder in 1987. She had recently received approval for supplemental security income. Not only would this double her monthly monetary assistance that she received, SSI also paid retroactively to the date of the application. This meant that she would get her first check for nearly $2,000, a pretty hefty sum for someone struggling in poverty in the 80s. Ruthie intended to use the check to help her leave the ABLA homes. She also used some of the money to buy some new clothes and a few household items that she did not have. Nothing was extravagant spending by any stretch of the imagination, but there were still accusations and they drew notice to her money. Whoever killed Ruthie, targeted her because they believed she had a large sum of money hidden in her apartment. They want to break in? Coy. Yeah, they throw the cabinet down. Dispatcher. From where? Coy. I'm in the projects. I'm on the other side. You can reach... can reach my bathroom. They want to come in through the bathroom. Dispatcher. Right, ma'am, what's the address? Coy. 1440 West 13th Street, apartment 1109. The elevator's working. Dispatcher. 1109? All right. What's your name, ma'am? Coy. Ruth McCoy. Dispatcher. All right, we'll send you the police. On the evening of April 22, 1987, the Chicago PD received a phone call from Ruthie. The frantic call confused the dispatcher, however. Records show that Ruthie claimed that her cabinet had been thrown down and people were trying to come in through the bathroom. While we now know this meant that the attackers were breaking in via the bathroom medicine cabinet, the dispatcher didn't immediately make the connection. Despite the confusion, a police car was sent in response to the call. 
What followed was a bizarre display of negligence. The first mistake made was that unfortunately the dispatcher did not note down the call as a break-in. It was simply recorded as a disturbance. This may explain the lack of urgency on the part of the officers sent to the homes. Before the car could even arrive, the Chicago PD received more 911 calls. This time, it was neighbors reporting that they heard gunshots and shouting. Several officers did finally arrive to Ruthie's door. However, when they knocked, no one answered. A couple of officers went to the homes management office to retrieve a key for her apartment. But for unknown reasons, the key didn't fit the lock. Now, given the fact that Ruthie called in herself to 911 and said somebody was breaking in, then multiple neighbors called and said they heard screaming and gunshots. You'd think it would have a bit of a priority. No, instead, because the key didn't work and no one answered, they left. The next night, one of Ruthie's neighbors called the Chicago PD again. They stated that Ruthie would normally greet them twice a day, once in the morning and once in the afternoon but she hadn't seen the other woman since the day before. Several police officers returned to Ruthie's apartment. Once again, they knocked on the door, and once again, there was no answer. Instead of doing a welfare check and finding a way in, they simply left. Deborah Lastly was the neighbor of Ruthie who reached out to the police department. Once Deborah saw that the police were gonna be of no help, she reached out to the management office herself. The office then sent a couple of people to Ruthie's apartment who finally got the door open. There is when they found the grisly scene. Ruthie May was found in her bedroom, shot multiple times and laying in a pool of blood. Her bedroom had been completely ransacked. And because it had been a couple days since the break-in had happened, the smell of decomp had begun to pervade the apartment. Unfortunately, crimes committed in Chicago's public housing projects rarely garnered any widespread media, especially when the victim is a mentally ill black woman. In fact, the only reason that the case made the Chicago Tribune as a news brief was because detectives learned that the killers had entered the home from an adjacent apartment by breaking through the bathroom's medicine cabinet. This means of entrance shocked many. However, the residents of the ABLA told a different story. According to a 1987 article by Steve Bagheera published in the Chicago Reader, people have been breaking into these apartments via medicine cabinets for over a year prior to Ruthie's murder. Two men would later be arrested for the break-in, burglary, and murder, but they were found not guilty in court. The bewildering case of Ruthie Mae McCoy may have been forgotten, had it not been for Candyman. Not only did the film feature similar details to her murder, such as what the projects were dealing with in Chicago at the time, the bathroom mirrors being, well, a bit wonky and connecting to other apartments. Now that you're aware that Candyman and Bloody Mary won't be surprising you in your bathroom, I can't tell you that nobody else will. Check those medicine cabinets and stay safe. Children living in the Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania area tell tales of Charlie No-Face, sometimes known also as the Green Man. The story says that long ago, Charlie was a utilities worker that became disfigured in a horrible accident. Some versions of the legend say it was an explosion of acid, some say it was an electric power line, and some say it was a sudden burst of fire. In many of these versions, the accident had mysteriously turned his skin a ghastly green which is why they called him the Green Man. But, in every single variation of the tale, 
Charlie's face had been melted off. The details changed depending on who was telling it, whether the man had been nearly burned alive, his face seemingly melted like candle wax. Maybe in one story he was struck by lightning as a boy, or maybe his skin had been turned green due to a radioactive incident at a nearby plant. No matter how you heard it, everyone growing up in the Pittsburgh area heard a story about Charlie No-Face, or the Green Man, the monster of Beaver County. For anyone who ever doubted that Charlie No-Face existed, I'm here to tell you it was not just an urban legend. Charlie No-Face was real, and his name was Ray. In March 2007, The Times published a comprehensive story on Ray Robinson, known by many as the Green Man. The article was about a horrific accident about an eight-year-old boy who was electrocuted in 1918 in Beaver Falls. Ray Robinson was walking with his sister and a few friends in Newcastle, Pennsylvania, when they noticed a bird's nest perched atop a tree next to an abandoned trolley trestle. Wanting to get a closer look, Ray climbed up, but accidentally touched a wire that had once powered the trolley. Although the trolley has been abandoned, it still had power flowing through it. In an instant, Ray was electrocuted. All of his facial features, including his right arm, were destroyed and melted due to the intense power of the voltage. In early August of 1919, an eight-year-old boy by the name of Ray Robinson was walking with his sister and a few friends. This is when they noticed a bird's nest that was located next to an abandoned trolley trestle. Wanting to get a closer look, Ray climbed up but accidentally touched a wire that once powered the trolley. Almost a year earlier, another boy touched the same wire and died after two painful weeks in the hospital. However, the power line was still active when Ray reached for it. He was severely electrocuted. His nose, lips, ears, and eyes were all gone or misshapen. Both of his arms remain and one of his hands was completely blown off clean. Somehow he survived. But Ray didn't have much of a life after that, at least for a while. If you look at old Victorian homes, so many of them have isolated rooms with drains and plumbing and everything you need to just live right there. According to Tisha York, a documentarian who spent three years researching Ray's life for an unreleased film about the Green Man, she says, quote, Back then, this is where families kept children like Ray. They were different, and they kept people who were different away from the world. Now, Ray didn't exactly get mistreated, but he was isolated and ostracized. His own family even ate separately from him. Ray genuinely tried to make the best of his life. He was an avid baseball fan and he listened to every game that his radio would pick up. He learned how to read braille and also learned how to make wallets and doormats out of old tires. When Ray became a man, his family fashioned a small apartment for him out in their garage. Ray managed to stay hidden for quite some time, until that garage apartment started to feel like a prison. This is when Ray decided to start walking the local highways, always alone and always at night. This is where Charlie No-Face was born. So that's the thing about urban legends. Most of them are grounded in some truth. More often than not, more grounded in tragedy. Ray Robinson definitely had an unusual face. 
He had a reputation that kept children up all night and still continues to. They still talk about him in Beaver County. In fact, they talk about Charlie No-Face all over the world. It seems as though no one can keep him hidden anymore. Ray passed away in 1981 in a nursing home. Ray is buried in Beaver County and is resting just a few feet away from the little boy who was electrocuted just one year before him. Occasionally, you will see fresh flowers being placed on his grave. According to many, Ray is a gleaming example of someone being given the worst and making the best. Charlie No-Face, the glowing green man, the monster of Beaver County. He was more than just an urban legend. He was a man, and his name was Ray. About 15 buildings here have been abandoned for quite some time. They did a lot of searching for the kids here. Specifically for Jennifer and I believe Holly Ann. Growing up on Staten Island, Barbara and I had often heard the legend of Cropsy. You're supposed to have a hook and axe with a knife about this big. Cropsy was the escaped mental patient who lived in the tunnels beneath the old abandoned Willowbrook Mental Institution, who would come out late at night snatch children off the streets. I have never, I would have never guessed there was the, the amount of weirdos living on Staten Island. There might be somebody on your block. There might be somebody you work with. You know, here's this guy going around picking off these kids. I can imagine how other parents, even if your kid's gone for an hour, I can imagine how they must feel. You know, that's probably the, one of the last things that you ever think about, that somebody would take your daughter. It seemed like everywhere I went, there were people out in the woods looking for that little girl. It's no question if we were going to find her, we definitely were going to find her. She thinks we're picking at dead children's bones. We just want closure on this, that's all. If killers coming through your medicine cabinet doesn't freak you out, how about this? This is the story of a nightmare come to life. Once, Cropsy was just an urban legend known as the Boogeyman of Staten Island. Cropsy was rumored to be a homicidal madman, an escaped mental patient with a hook for a hand, who hunted down children and dragged them back to the tunnel system that lay under the abandoned ruins of the old Seaview Hospital. Parents would use Cropsy to frighten their children into being good and staying near home. After all, Cropsy could be anywhere, waiting to strike. Older siblings would tell Cropsy stories at night to terrify their younger brothers and sisters. And as if that wasn't enough, one summer camp variation of the tale of Cropsy inspired a 1981 slasher movie, The Burning. But then, another thing to happen in the 1980s? The children of Staten Island had even more reason to begin to fear this local boogeyman, as Cropsy had in fact come to life in the form of an actual homicidal madman, and he really did hunt children. Andre Rand was born Frank Ruchan, but his murderous lifestyle has left him immortalized as Cropsy. Born on March 11, 1944 in Manhattan, New York, Andre is considered to be the most notorious criminal Staten Island has ever known. This designation is largely due to the horrid nature of his crimes, ones that involved innocent children. The story of Andre Rand fortunately concluded with a permanent prison sentence. But the convicted kidnapper and suspected child serial killer still managed to leave enough tragedy behind. Andre Rand is currently serving consecutive 25 years to life sentences. This man's dark and perversely engrossed life began as a real world bedtime story. 
The kids of Staten Island were regularly told spooky tales of a boogeyman, a figure with a hooked hand. The shape would drag children away from the safety of their homes and carry them off to a local abandoned hospital. This villainous entity became known as Cropsey, which Andre Rand would soon embody, as he committed strikingly similar acts as he terrorized the Staten Island community. Scary bedtime stories are a standard part throughout many child's early life. However, Cropsey, this ominous little spooky tale of don't wander around alone at night, would soon become a reality. Fact and fiction would begin to fold in on one another as local children began to disappear and bodies began to pile up. The year 1972. The sounds, patients inside Willowbrook State School. It was supposed to be a place to help children and adults with developmental disabilities. Instead, the city's most vulnerable were neglected, abused, and worse. Andre worked as a janitor at Willowbrook State School on Staten Island. This institution was built as a home for children with intellectual disabilities and was revealed to be a living hell in the 1970s. Even with the discovery of the mistreatment of those who stayed there, it would not close down until 1987. The children who lived there had been subjected to rampant sexual abuse and corporal punishment. Severe overcrowding also led to unsanitary conditions. It was also home to what has been called one of the most unethical medical experiments on children in the U.S. In the name of hepatitis research, medical staff intentionally injected healthy children with the virus, many of whom became severely ill as a result. The public wasn't aware of the conditions inside the school, given that many of the children inside had sadly been abandoned by their parents. I first heard of this big place with the pretty sounding name because of a call I received from a member of the Willowbrook staff, Dr. Michael Wilkins. The doctor invited me to see the conditions he was talking about, so unannounced and unexpected by the school administration, we toured building number six. The doctor had warned me that it would be bad. It was horrible. There was one attendant for perhaps 50 severely and profoundly retarded children. Lying on the floor, naked and smeared with their own feces, they were making a pitiful sound, a kind of mournful wail that it's impossible for me to forget. This is what it looked like, this is what it sounded like, but how can I tell you about the way it smelled? It smelled of filth, it smelled of disease, and it smelled of death. In 1972, a young Geraldo Rivera published an expose that revealed the horrific conditions inside the Willowbrook State School. This would ignite a national scandal. The school was officially closed 15 years later. That same year, Andre Rand, a former school janitor at Willowbrook, was arrested in connection with the disappearance of Jennifer Schweiger. Jennifer was a 12-year-old girl with Down syndrome. At the time, Andre was homeless and living in a makeshift campsite on the grounds of the abandoned school. His campsite was also not far from the Seaview Hospital, which was closely tied to the Cropsey legend. Over a month after her disappearance, searchers found Jennifer's body in a shallow grave on the desolate school grounds where the drifter was living. Andre was charged with murder. 
By this time, however, Andre already had a pretty long rap sheet of crimes against children. In 1969, he was sentenced to 16 months in jail for attempting sexual assault on a nine-year-old. In 1983, he went to jail again after kidnapping a bus full of children from the local YMCA. Although there was not enough physical evidence to charge him, police allegedly suspect him in the disappearances of at least four other Staten Island children. Alice Pereira, who was five years old when she disappeared in 1972. Holly Ann Hughes, who was seven when she disappeared in 1981. She was also last spotted with Andre on the day of her disappearance. Then there's 11-year-old Thais Jackson, who disappeared in 1983. And Hank Aforio, a mentally disabled 22-year-old who was last seen with Andre at a diner in 1984. To this day, none of the bodies have been found. The jury for Andre's case could not reach a verdict on the murder charge, as there was not enough physical evidence for his direct involvement in Jennifer's death. However, they found him guilty of kidnapping, for which Andre received a sentence of 25 years to life. Andre would have been eligible for parole in 2008, but in 2004, new evidence came to light linking him to the disappearance of Holly Ann Hughes. A fellow inmate took notes of conversations he had had with Andre. In these notes, it depicts of Andre's abduction and murder of the girl. Andre was convicted on a second kidnapping charge and given another 25-year sentence. Andre will not be eligible for parole until 2037, when he will be a hearty 93 years old. Andre's story and that of Cropsey continue to fascinate and horrify tri-state residents to this day, though Cropsey itself is an urban legend. I think we can agree, Andre Rand truly embodied it, because he was the Staten Island monster. Calls coming from inside the house. Could it be an urban legend? Officially, the babysitter and the man upstairs urban legend has existed since the 1960s. When word-of-mouth morality tales like The Hook and The Vanishing Hitchhiker were still mostly told in person. However, this urban legend is based in fact. The real origin story happened in 1950, when teenager Jeanette Christman was babysitting for a family friend. Typically, the babysitter and the man upstairs urban legend goes something like this. A teenage girl is babysitting at night. The children have been put to bed upstairs and the babysitter is downstairs watching TV. The phone rings and the caller asks, have you checked the children? The young teen dismisses the call and goes back to watching TV. The anonymous caller dials back several times. Eventually, the babysitter calls the police, who inform her that they will trace the next call. After the stranger calls again, the police return her call, advising her to leave immediately. She evacuates the home and the police meet her. They explain that the calls were coming from inside the house and that the unidentified intruder was calling her after killing the children upstairs. We traced the call. It's coming from inside the house. You hear me? It's coming from inside the house. In March of 1950, Janet Christman was just 13 years old when she was hired to babysit three-year-old Gregory Romick. That night, Janet decided to babysit instead of attending a school party. Earlier that week, she had purchased a new outfit on installment payments and wanted to pay it off as soon as she could. At 7.30, she arrived at the Romics' home outside of a small town in Columbia, Missouri. Before the couple left for the night, Ed Romack bought his shotgun out and placed it by the front door. 
He showed Janet how to load and shoot the gun and told her not to answer the door without turning on the porch light first. This was so she could make sure she recognized whoever was there. It is not mentioned whether that is normal for the time and that era or if Ed was just maybe paranoid. He may have even suspected that there would be trouble that night. Again, that is all speculation as we do not know the reason. At 10.35 that night, the local police department received a call. A girl on the other end was screaming, come quick, before the line cut out. Unfortunately, in the 1950s, technology did not exist for them to trace calls, and there was nothing they could do to identify the caller or their location. Just before 11, the couple called their home in hopes to talking to the babysitter and checking on the kids, but did not get an answer. When the Romax returned home at 1.30 in the morning, they opened their front door to a pool of blood. Sadly, Janet was pronounced dead at the scene. She had been raped and strangled to death and struggled with her attacker violently before succumbing to her injuries. It was noted that the porch light had been turned on and the phone had been pulled straight out of the wall. This likely happened when Jeanette was trying to call for help. Fortunately, Gregory Romack was found upstairs still asleep in his bed. Janet's case is still unsolved. And that is the true story of the babysitter and the man upstairs. And that brings us to the end of this spooky season episode. I hope you guys enjoyed these urban legends that are actually based in reality. Stay safe, guys, and until the next episode, love you. Later. Bye.